Shabbat Shalom. Hello? Oh, there I am. Hi. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Nobody, nobody's in a funny mood today. Everybody's very serious. It's Shabbat. Come on. All right. Well, we got some announcements for, for you all today and some handwritten announcements. Um, we're going to get to the important things first. First and foremost, there is a ladies' night by the pool Sunday, July 28th from 5 to 8 p.m. Please see Melissa uh, Mussin for that. I think she's out there uh, working with Oneg. But please see her. The ladies are going to hang out by the pool, um, have a ladies' uh, night. Um, next week for Oneg. What's up, Shepard? Hi, dude. Uh, for Oneg, let's make sure to, uh, to bring a little bit of extra food, just like this week where we have a lot of out families from out of town. We're going to have the same thing uh, next week. We're going to have a lot of extra people here. So we definitely want to show the hospitality of Abraham uh, to them by having uh, food for them. Um, men's attack, the men's attack, first men's attack will be Sunday, August 4th at Gray Owl Coffee uh, in Norman. We'll be meeting on the back patio. Uh, coffee will be provided, and Cameron Wallace will be uh, doing the, uh, the small group study for all the men. So, uh, men, come join us during that time. You can bring your kids with you if you would like. Uh, we're going to have a time of fellowship hanging out. Uh, when it comes down to my time, I think we're going to have Guys Day by the pool uh, since the ladies have a fun time coming up as well. Love Your Neighbors, August 3rd, coming up really quick. Uh, we are not going to be hosting Sabbath services here on that Saturday morning. We're encouraging everybody to join with us and to attend Bet On Me congregation up in the city at 3 p.m. This is something that we want to do quarterly. Uh, we want to find another uh, congregation in the area, and we want to go love on them and worship with them uh, together. Um, you know, Hine Matov, behold how good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together. So we won't have services here. We'll be going up there to join with them for that weekly service. That's 3 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, August 3rd. Uh, that is the first August, or first August, first Saturday in August. You can tell that Camp Yeshua is here and nobody is sleeping. So uh, love on your city. We have some outreach opportunities uh, coming up as well. Uh, contact Stephen and Alicia Drews and they'll get you uh, hooked in, whether it's a city rescue mission, uh, whether it's Grace Living Center or some of the other places that we have coming up. want to let you guys know we do have kids class this week. Uh, after we do the blessing over the children, they can leave. Your kids are also welcome to stay with us. Uh, we are a family fellowship, so your kids are definitely welcome to hang out with us inside here. Also, uh, just a quick reminder that we do have the all-new HFF website up, uh, hff.church, and uh, you can go there. Uh, today, I am I'm very excited. Uh, the elephant in the movement is the teaching that uh, Daniel Musson is going to be bringing forth today. Uh, and we've got worship by Amy uh, and some of our uh, young adults and teenagers today. So I'm very excited about that. So Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Glad you guys are here and watching online. We're going to go ahead, stand up, find somebody we don't know, say Shabbat Shalom, welcome them, greet them. And then we're going to go ahead and get started with the time of praise and worship.
storm surrounding me, let it break at your name still. Call the sea to still, the region me to still.
worthy of honor. You are worthy of glory. There is none who is awesome in power and in wondrous works as you are our King. Glory to the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Savior, our Master. We surrender to you. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you are Lord. You are Lord. Yeshua is Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice you made on our behalf that we might join in with all creation and bow before you and confess that you are sovereign over all creation. We surrender our hearts to you today and we invite you to take up your throne in our hearts. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to those of you that are here for Camp Yeshua. God has something really special planned for you this coming week, I know. All right, this is a time for prayer. So I'm gonna, let me share some things with you, and then I'll let you pray for them. We, we have been praying for Joyce forever, it seems like. I think she's in her ninth week at the hospital, something like that. She's, she's doing really well. Uh, she's no longer on dialysis. Uh, she's up and walking around, sitting more, doing well. They're gonna put her in some physical therapy and then hopefully within a week or so, within a week, we'll pray that way, that she'll be able to come home. All right, amen. But God has really had his hand on her and uh, if you want to really find out more about what God's been doing in her life, sit down and talk to Ray sometime. And he'll fill you in on all those things that God has been doing in her life. Uh, and so there's a reason for her being there. And we give God the glory. Patrice is recovering from her knee replacement surgery and doing really well. So we praise God for that. And Virginia is recovering from her uh, aorta valve replacement in her heart. Uh, she was, at one time, they told her she was going to be in the hospital for five or six days, but she, they sent her home two days after the surgery. So she's home, she's doing well, so praise God for that too. And we need to pray for Camp Yeshua. Uh, we need to pray for Ephraim that he'll get, be able to get some sleep during that week. <laughs> Uh, for all the other counselors that are going to be there, for the staff, we need to pray for them. Uh, we need to pray for the young men and women that will be there, uh, that God will do something wonderful in their lives while they're there. And we need to pray for travel, for those who are still traveling to get 
he get here to Camp Yeshua. So uh, pray for that also. Uh, Judith is in the process of downsizing. And uh, with the thought that at some point in the next few months, she's going to be moving to Fort Worth. So she needs somebody to buy the house that she's in right now. So we need to be praying that God will provide at the right time the right people to purchase her home so she can move down to Fort Worth. And then don't forget to pray today for those who are bringing us the teaching, for Cam as he brings the first five, and for Daniel as he brings the, the main message. And as always, we pray for Israel, for the situation over there, for the peace of Jerusalem, for Netanyahu and all the things that are going on over there. Uh, we know that God is in control of that. And so we can rest in that knowledge, knowing that whatever happens over there, he's the one who's telling them what to do. He's the one who's dictating things. He's the one who's in charge and in control. And so we can rest in that. And we can say that for this nation too, okay? Uh, God is the one who raises leaders. So uh, we can pray for this nation in the, in the firm knowledge that what is going on is part of God's plan, but we still need to pray for this nation, uh, for the end of all the divisiveness that exists, that we can all come together as one nation, one people under God and be what God wanted us to be. All right? So let me turn that over to you, and then I'll close this in a few minutes. Father, we again thank you that you have opened the doors that we can come into your throne room and present to you those things that you have placed on our hearts. And thank you that you hear each and every prayer and you answer each and every prayer. 
so we raise these petitions to you this morning in anticipation of your answering them. We praise you for the answers that we've seen, for the healing that you've done in the lives of those who've had surgeries. And we pray for their continued healing. Thank you that you are the one and only true God. You are the God that controls and runs this universe. You created everything, and everything exists only because you allow it to. And we give you that glory and that honor and acknowledge that. And thank you that you are the one that's in charge of what's going on around this world and in this nation. Help us to trust you with what's going on and to be in prayer as you have called us to for your nation, Israel, for your people, for Jerusalem. We pray and look forward to the day when there truly will be peace in Jerusalem. Pray for Cam as he brings the first five this morning and for Daniel as he brings the main message. Thank you that your spirit has put a message on their hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey whatever it is that you want to tell us this morning. We commit this service to you. Ask that uh, our time here this morning would be pleasing to you. They would, it would be a sweet incense in your nostrils. And I pray for each person here that your spirit would touch their hearts this morning and that they would leave here different than when they came in. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this Sabbath that we can come and rest and worship you. And we thank you for all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, if I can have the children come up. Since we have a little bit of a uh, special service today, there's a bunch of youth that are in town for Camp Yeshua, I want to go ahead and invite the Camp Yeshua kids to come up, even if you're a little bit older. We want to make sure we pour a special blessing upon you this week as well. So uh, if you're here for Camp Yeshua, come on up and we're going to join you with uh, all the kids and bless you. And most definitely our talit overfloweth. Wow. All right. Let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, Father. We thank you for this place, this facility, this fellowship, Lord, that uh, you have called us to be here and be a light in this community. And Father, we thank you for the blessing and the uh, prosperity that you have given to all the families here in this fellowship. Father, I thank you for every single one of the beautiful faces that is under this talit and even beyond, Father. 
Father, I pray that you would pour out a special blessing upon them this Sabbath day. For all of these uh, children, young men, young women, Father, are your children, Lord. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them, that you would cause them to grow and to be, and be risen up, Lord, to be great leaders of families in the future, Lord, future leaders of communities, Father, for that's who we are looking at here under this talit. This is the future of this movement, Father, and I pray that you would continue to bless us, the parents, the elders, anyone who has an opportunity to speak and to raise up these children. Father, may we speak life into them in all cases. May it always be your words and your wisdom, Lord, that instructs them and teaches them, Lord. Father, I pray that you would, that even the elders would learn from these young people, Lord. For we are taught to have faith like a child, just as a young child raises their arms up to their father or their mother in a time of need. May we always look to you, our Heavenly Father, and raise our arms up to you in any time of need that we have. So, Father, I pray you pour a special blessing upon these young people here. May you make the sons to be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Make them fruitful and multiply, Lord, as they grow. And may the daughters be as Ruth and as Esther, make them righteous daughters of Zion, and may the words of your mitzvot, your commandments and kindness always be upon their lips. So Father, we pour out a special blessing upon them this Sabbath day. We pray that you turn your countenance toward them and you give them peace. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. We're going to have a kids class. We're going to limit to ages 4 to 10 uh, this week for the number of kids and guests that we have. So ages 4 to 10, uh, you have a kids class. And anyone younger than that, the nursery is also open for you as well. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so this week's first five is based off of the Torah portion, Kuchat. Uh, which is Numbers 19, 1 through 22, 1. Uh, in this section, we see a very famous story in Numbers 20, which is Moses striking the rock and getting the waters of Meribah out. Uh, I probably said that weird. I feel like I did. Um, in this section, there's also some other stuff that when I was reading it, it really just stuck out to me, and so I'm going to kind of focus on that. Um, this section has a lot of has two specifically really weird things in my brain where God did some like strange stuff. Uh, in chapters 19, we see about the red heifer and the sacrificial um, system of doing that and what the priests had to do in order to uh, burn that offering on the altar. In that, after they have burned literally everything, including the dung, they take that, they take the ash, they take it outside of the city gates to a designated clean holy place now, anytime that somebody had done something to make themselves impure, such as touching a dead body, they would have to go out of the city gates, gather some of the ash, put it in water, and put it upon themselves. Once they did that on the third and the seventh day, they were purified. They were spiritually pure. That's weird to me because you're taking this weird, like, cow water, putting it on yourself, making yourself, like, physically unclean, because, like, that just sounds gross to me. I don't like dirt on my hands, so I can't imagine putting, like, ash water and be like, now I'm spiritually clean. That's God working outside of, like, our understanding of things. Okay, and then if we go into chapter 21, we then see another really weird thing that God does that uh, brings up, like, a childhood memory. We see that the children of Israel 
once again go and complain about being thirsty and hungry and that God has doomed them to die out in the wilderness like they've done many times before. (laughs) This time, God's solution is snakes. And a bunch of the people of Israel get bitten and die. And then once people have died, again, that's when they realize that they've messed up. You know, people always have to die for them to realize that they've done something wrong and that they've messed with God. Um, (laughs) At that point, God tells Moses, make a staff and put a bronze serpent on top of it. This is the childhood memory thing that kicks in. Anybody else grew up watching Aladdin, like the Disney movie? I watched the VHS, like, till it died, and my mom was upset because I kept playing it over and over. So I picture the, the villain in Aladdin, Jafar and his, like, bronze serpenty staff that hypnotized people. That's what I'm picturing in my mind with the scripture. So if we were to be in the congregation today and let's say Daniel came up to you and said, hey, I hear you have cancer. God told me to take cancer and make a cell out of bronze that looks just like a cancer cell. And you stare at it and now your cancer is gone. You would look like him. You would look at him like he's crazy and you'd be telling your spouse or significant other, we need to find a new church. Um, (laughs) You would be running away. Um, Then we see this story retold in John, right before John 3.16, which we all know, uh, in John 3.14 and 15, uh, Yeshua talks about that he is to be risen like the staff with the bronze serpent on it, and that when people see him, that they will have redemption, that they will have eternal life, that they will be freed from their sin, from the penalty of their sin. Um, I'm looking at these verses and I'm going, man, that sounds like some witchcraft kind of stuff, some weird things that God's doing there. And yet he uses this as an example. Yeshua uses these things as an example. And this is God working outside of our rational minds. Um, I'm very black and white when it comes to things. And this is like, Y'all, y'all be weird. We're over here like tripping on people when they're using essential oils. Somebody's telling you to rub cow water on yourself to be pure. That's weird. Um, so we've been trained, and we, we all understand here that Yeshua died on a cross. A man had to die for us to be free from the penalty of sin, which is also outside of our rational mind. That's God working outside our rational mind. We know this. We accept this. That's why we're all sitting here today. It's because we believe that this man had to die for us to be free from the penalty of sin. And we can grasp that. But I think that if we look back at this section in Numbers, we realize that God is constantly working outside of the rational. That maybe we're missing the miracles, the opportunity to be free, to be pure, because we're trapping him inside of a rational mind, not realizing that he's over there saying, hey, it's going to be weird, and you're going to think it's gross sometimes maybe, but you got to go do this. So it's, you know, another story in John, and I'm going to try and wrap up. I know Chris is probably staring at me right now. Um, (laughs) But another story that I thought of that exemplifies this process of God and Yeshua doing things outside of our normal rational minds is in John we also see Yeshua spitting in dirt and making the mud which what does that mud do what does that spit and dirt being rubbed onto somebody do it makes them see it removes blindness from a man now that's gross y'all come up to me spitting in dirt and tell me to rub it on my eyes 
so that I can get 20-20 vision. I ain't doing it. I'm sorry. Um, so I just I want us to focus today on sometimes we see these things that we think are irrational, things that we think are strange, we don't understand. Uh, there's a lot of criticism in the world for things that we don't understand, the things that we don't like, maybe we're misinformed on. We hold those against people and say, God can't move like that. So I, I hope that uh, we focus on this portion and we realize that God's constantly working outside of our rational minds. All right, let us pray. Father, thank you so much today for, uh, for bringing us all together to be in your presence. Father, I pray that we be unlike the Israelites who were rebels, who were unbelievers, who didn't trust that you could do many amazing things. They always trapped you in the logical, rational minds, thinking that I don't have water, I don't have food, there's no way that God can bring something to me to help me survive. This is my end. Father, I pray that we look at everything that you have given us and realize that you do such amazing things outside of our rational mind, and you will continue to do those things time and time again. Father, I pray that we are open and accepting to every way that you can move in our lives. As we pray today, amen. Amen. His ways are much higher than ours, and sometimes they just don't make sense to us, but uh, the good thing is he's in control. So this morning, um, I totally had planned on talking about something else. Uh, in fact, uh, Cameron and I were talking about, I was asking him, so what are you doing the first five on? And, and, uh, and at that point I realized, because I had already put this, this uh, teaching together for this week, I realized, oh, <laughs> I totally didn't even cover what I was going to cover because as I sat down and started typing, uh, apparently the Spirit led me in a different direction. So you get to hear um, that direction that uh, I was led in today. So um, this, uh, this week we're going to look at uh, what has been uh, dubbed here the elephant in the movement. Um, so there is a, a verse we're all familiar with, but there's something that uh, we may not be familiar with about that verse. Upon this rock I will build my um, something. Okay. Um, to put this into perspective, we're going to lay some groundwork here. This week's parasha, Chukat, um, looking in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, in the first five verses, it says something very interesting, and there's stuff that's there in the Hebrew that uh, we're going to pull out. Okay. Uh, it says in verse 1, Now the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam dies there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moshe and Aharon. The people contended with Moshe and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before Adonai, why then have you brought Adonai's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water here to drink. <laughs> this is what's taking place. Now, there's several things that are here in the Hebrew that I have skipped over, but I'm going to come back and point to. Okay? There is a word that's used here twice, and there's another word that's used here twice, and these words are going to play a big factor in what we look at here today. You see, it says, 
Now the sons of Israel, the whole Edah, the whole congregation. There was no water for the Edah congregation. And as a result, they assembled Kahal themselves against Moshe. Why have you brought Adonai's Kahal assembly out into this barren wasteland? Now there's some other things that are taking place here. It's, there's a mention here that Miriam, the sister of Moshe, she passes away. So the context here of chapter 20, if we go back to chapter 14 and start reading up through chapter 20, we're going to find out why these people are whining. Why, excuse me, why we are whining. Okay? You see, the context here is in chapter 14, we saw that there were the 10 spies that were sent into the land. And those 10 spies come back. We know, of course, that what happens is there's a rejection of the good report. We reject that good report. We also, in doing so, reject the good land where there's milk and honey flowing. You know, where the vines and the pomegranates and those things are at. We reject it because we believe the bad report. Now, instead of just humbling ourselves and repenting for our behavior, no, what do we do? After we hear the Father say, okay, fine, you guys are going to reject my land, you're going to reject my promises, then you're all going to die. Oh, no, no, let's go, let's go, let's go. And let's go attack the Amalekites. Oh, how'd that work out? Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. All you guys who are older than 20, you're all going to die out here? Oh, let's go fulfill that for the Lord. Let's go kill ourselves in battle. And then what happens is, after those people die, then other people rise up and we have the rebellion of Korah. Moshe and Aharon, how dare you do this? How dare you assert yourselves as leaders and tell us that we're all going to die out here? And then we have a plague after Korah and his company dies and the people arise and we complain. Why have you killed the Lord's anointed? And a plague comes. And more of us die. See, it didn't take long for some of these older than 20s to die off because we immediately acted in rebellion. And now Miriam dies, the one who led us in the song of worship and praise after we crossed the Red Sea. This is the context of what's taking place in chapter 20. Now, one of these things is easy to overlook. There was no water for the Edah, the congregation. They, Kahal, assembled themselves. When you have brought Adonai's Kahal assembly into this wilderness. This word Edah, it's essentially to mean a crowd or a, a gathering, but it's most often translated as the word congregation. In fact, in most of your English versions, this word edah occurs 149 times, and almost every single time it will be uh, translated as congregation in your English Bible. Okay? We see as an example, Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. You shall keep it. This is referring to the Passover lamb. So just before verse 6, it's talking about going out and selecting a lamb and bringing it into your home. Okay? You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole Edah, the whole congregation of Israel, is to kill it between the evenings. So there's an example of where Edah is translated as congregation. 
Now, in contrast, the second word used here is slightly more familiar for most of us. It's the word kahal. Most of us have heard that word, right? If you've been in this movement for any period of time, you've heard the word kahal. Um, now, kahal means to gather or to assemble. Here's the thing. Edah isn't quite as familiar to us as kahal is. Edah occurs 149 times. Kahal only occurs 39 times in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. One example. In the story of the rebellion of Korah, which we read just a couple weeks ago, Numbers chapter 16, verse 19. Thus Korah Kahal assembled himself, or assembled all the Edah congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of Adonai appeared to all the congregation, all the Edah. Okay? So in that verse, we have both words used, Edah used twice, and Kahal used once, right? Why is this guy talking about these two Hebrew words? Stick with me. We're going somewhere with this. Okay? Although Edah is found much more commonly in the Tanakh, it is used less frequently as a word to describe a group of believers. For instance, um, you've probably heard this phrase, the Adat something. Okay? If you do a Google search and you search Adat, okay, you'll find, for instance, there are congregations that use that word to name themselves. There's an Adat Yeshua. It's a Messianic uh, congregation up in Kansas. There's an Adat Shalom in Detroit. There's an Adat Chavarim, which is a congregation of friends in Texas. There's an Adat Yeshurun in California. Yeshurun, of course, being a, a biblical term referring to Israel. So in those scenarios, those are congregations that are using that word Adat, a Hebrew word to describe congregation. Okay? But it's rare. There's only a handful of these congregations around the country. In contrast... The word kahal, which appears a whole lot less frequently in Scripture, you'll find that if you do a Google search on the word kehila or kehilat, you'll find dozens if not hundreds of congregations that have named themselves with that name. Okay? Why, why is this when it's used so much less frequently? Well, the point of this is that the prevailing line of thought amongst those who have learned at least a little bit of Hebrew is that the word kahal is the most appropriate Hebrew word to denote a congregation or assembly. This view is supported by verses like Deuteronomy 31.30. In that verse it says, Then Moshe spoke in the hearing of all the kahal, assembly, of Yisrael's, it, the words of this song until they were complete. And so this is in reference to the song of Moshe. He spoke in the presence of all the kahal, all the assembly. Now, if we bring this line of, of thought forward to today, we hear those that make the claim that when we see a certain word in the New Testament that speaks of a body of believers, that it's merely a word made up by replacement theologians masquerading as translators, and that it would have been the word kahal that would have been used there. For example, when Yeshua says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, Petra, in the Greek. And upon this rock, Petros, in the Greek, I will build my something or other. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, I personally have heard people insist that what Yeshua would have said there was on this rock I will build my kahal. Now these... Now, it, there's some truth to the fact that he didn't speak Greek. He would have spoken Hebrew, or more likely Aramaic. But 
these same people then who have made these claims, I've heard them go on to insist that the word that exists here in the English version, dare I say it, <gasps> church, is a replacement word. That it was made up much later. They also insist that this word has no place in the vocabulary of a Torah keeper except as an epithet used to describe an apostate group of idol worshippers. You know, the church. Well, let's take a step back from our uh, perspectival paradigms here and actually approach this from a scholarly perspective. Now first, as I mentioned, obviously Yeshua would have been speaking Hebrew or more likely Aramaic when he addressed Peter. Aramaic is a very close cousin to Hebrew. They're, they're very closely related. Unfortunately, the only verifiable documents that we have are all written in Greek. So we don't have a document in which we can see what he said there in either Hebrew or Aramaic. We have to rely upon the Greek documents that we have. That being the case, we must rely upon those Greek texts. So what does the Greek say in this verse in Matthew? It says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. Now, how many of you are familiar with the term ecclesia? Okay. So, this word ecclesia is used in... Um, Numerous areas that we, we should recognize. In fact, I'm going to point a, a couple out. It's a, a familiar word to us because of the word Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Scripture, right? Okay. This book gets its name from the first verse. The first verse of Ecclesiastes says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is identifying himself as King Solomon. He calls himself the preacher. Well, this word here for preacher is Kohelet comes from kahal, and it means one who calls together the assembly. In fact, ecclesia literally means called out, just like it does right here in this passage. So this is why it's called ecclesiastes, that's a Greek word, talking about the called out ones. Because as the words say, as it begins, I, the, call, the called out, calling out one, am Solomon. In fact, the, this book in Hebrew, if you look in a Tanakh, it's called Kohelet, called out. Okay? It comes from the word kahal. Now, I believe that, the, that language and definition of terms has become one of the biggest barriers of our theological conclusions. Since we have the Second Testament that's written in Greek and a First Testament that's written in Hebrew, comparing these two languages is next to impossible. The good news is that there's a link between the two. It's called the Greek Septuagint. Now, this Greek Septuagint, it gets its name from something specific. And by comparing the Greek from the Second Testament with the Greek that's used in the First Testament in the Septuagint, we can land on some solid answers. And what I mean by that is this. If we go back to the New Testament, apostolic writings, Second Testament, whatever we want to call it, okay, this word ecclesia is used 118 times in the apostolic writings. Now, while throughout the Second Testament, this, uh, of this 118 times, 115 out of those 118, the word ecclesia is rendered as church. The other three, it's called assembly. Specifically, all three of those times, it's in Acts chapter 19. Verse 30, verse 39, and verse 41. There it's assembly. Every other time, 
It's church. Now, if we follow this rabbit hole even deeper, we'll find more relevance. To do that, we'll need to take a look at the Greek Septuagint. Uh, this Greek version, um, what it was, this is a version of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the First Testament. Okay? It was written about 200 years before the time of Yeshua, and it was written by 70 Hebrew scholars, which is where it gets its name from. Septa is 70. Okay? So the Septuagint was written by 70 Hebrew scholars. Now, there's a fable about it, whether we believe it or not. The fable is that the 70 Hebrew scholars were all isolated, and they were all instructed to translate from the Hebrew into the Greek, and that every single one of them had an identical version. That's the fable that comes with it. Whether we believe that or not, it's irrelevant. Either way, by the time of Yeshua... This Greek Septuagint had been spread through the Greek kingdom and many people were familiar with it. In fact, I would suggest to you that the author of the book of Hebrews was a Greek speaker, not a Hebrew speaker. He was writing a letter to Hebrews and that there are some keys in that book that explain some things that that author said because they took it out of the Greek Septuagint version. A whole other rabbit trail. But when we turn to the Septuagint for a first century Greek version of the scriptures, we find some very interesting things about these words that we've looked at so far. First, if we look at the, at the word edah for congregation, I mentioned that it occurs 149 times in the Tanakh. Well, out of those 149 times, almost every single time it occurs in the Greek Septuagint as the word synagogue. We should recognize that word because it gives us the word synagogue, okay? So as a result, when we read congregation in Numbers chapter 20, we could read synagogue there. So all the synagogue of Israel gathered together, okay? This is why, of course, the typical phrase for a Jewish group of believers, they meet where? Synagogue, okay? Now, in fact, the same Greek word synagogue is used numerous times in the apostolic writings in the New Testament. James chapter 2, verse 2 says, For if a man comes into your assembly, synagogue, so we see the word synagogue is used liberally in the Greek Septuagint to translate the word eda, which in the Hebrew is congregation, but we also find the word ekklesia that we looked at here that was in Matthew chapter 16 being used in the Greek Septuagint. In fact, the word ekklesia occurs 70 times. I find that number interesting. It's written by 70 authors. It's called the Septuagint because of the 70 authors, and this word ekklesia occurs 70 times. And it translates the word congregation or assembly. As an example, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Adonai gave me two tablets of stone written by the finger of Elohim, and on them were all the words which Adonai had spoken to you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the ecclesia. On the day of the assembly. In other words, as everyone was gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, that was the ecclesia in the Greek Septuagint. Now another verse, one we've already read, also is one of these 70 examples. Deuteronomy 31.30 then Moshe spoke in the hearing of all the, and we said earlier, kahal. Well, in the Greek Septuagint, it's ekklesia. He spoke in the hearing of all the ekklesia of Israel, the words of this song, until they were complete. So allow me to put this 
in as simple a way, a way to digest as I can, because I've probably lost some of the teens already. Oh, no problem, okay? Ecclesia is a word that occurs in the Greek New Testament. When we read it in our English versions, 118, uh, 115 out of 118 times is translated as church. Ecclesia, when it occurs in the Old Testament, it's translated into our English as assembly or congregation which means church in the New Testament and assembly or congregation in the Old Testament. So effectively, these words are the same. Ecclesia equals assembly equals congregation equals church. So we could legit legitimately render Deuteronomy chapter 3130 as saying this, Then Moshe spoke in the hearing of all the church of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Now I know this flies in the face of some of the thought processes that I referenced earlier. That somehow the word church is a made up word that came after the time of Yeshua. And it's part of some grand replacement theology. We could have this very same discussion about the word Christian, but that's a, a talk for another time. I ask you to look up the linguistic evidence and not get caught up with what someone's personal view of the word is, but what the scriptures actually say. You see, the word church, ecclesia, it doesn't mean an institution. It doesn't mean a place. It doesn't mean a building. Although we typically use it as a word to describe the entirety of the Christian faith, the church does this. By the way, that's a false statement anyway. Because the entirety of Christianity doesn't do this. You will find many people who are Christians who are not keeping Torah and yet they don't believe those things that we claim that the church is doing. But we're referring to it as one big blanket institution. That's an improper use of that word. And it's not how the word is used biblically either. The word church means the people. Specifically, the people who have pledged loyalty to our king. This is why we see Paul using this terminology in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to Adonai. For the husband is the head, the rosh, of the wife. As Messiah is also the head, the rosh, of the ecclesia, the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the ecclesia, the church, is subject to Messiah, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Messiah loved the ecclesia, the church, and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for the ecclesia the church, the congregation, the assembly. Now, typically we personalize that. He gave himself up for me. Yes. But he gave himself up for the church. So you see, when Yeshua told Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and he's making a word play here. Again, the word Petra, Peter in Greek, 
It's a takeoff of the word Petros, the Greek word for rock. And so he's making a word play. It's a double entendre here. Now, this comes right after. What is the basis of his response to Peter? It comes right after he says, Who do men say that I am? And they say, Well, some say that you're the prophet, and some say that you're Elijah, and some say that you're the Messiah. And he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are my Adon and my El. You are my Lord and my God. To which we get this response. And I say that you are rock. And upon that rock, not upon Peter, but upon his confession that he just made. Doesn't that fit in line with what we read in Romans? If we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that he's been raised from the dead and that he's Lord, that we shall be saved. Because it's upon that confession, you are my Lord and my God, that I will build my church. And then it goes on to say that the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Typically we have this mindset in the faith. Oh, not today, Satan. You can't attack me today, Satan. He ain't an attacker. You see here, Yes, he does, like a lion, roam around looking to see what weak one he can call prey. But this verse here says the church is an offensive weapon. It's the gates of hell that can't stand up against it. That's a defensive rampart. That means that the church should be aggressively pursuing His kingdom and not allowing His kingdom to do the opposite. And He wasn't saying that He was creating a new institution, a new system, a new building, or a new place when He makes this statement. What He meant that He is going to build His people his assembly, his congregation, his called out ones, his bride, his ecclesia, his church. That's who he was going to build. The same church that existed back at Sinai. The same ecclesia that gathered around the mountain. This is why we here at HFF have not shied away from using the term church. Because we understand what that term implies. Not from a modern perspective of what that term implies, but what it implies from a biblical standpoint. So if you hear us use the word church, you see it on our Facebook page or some banner or post, please understand, we're not referring to a theological system that discards the Seventh-day Sabbath. We're not referring to a system that observes the first day of the week as some kind of a replacement for the Sabbath. We're not saying that the Torah is done away with. We're not trying to make any of the theological mistakes that some of our brothers have made. Instead, we're reclaiming the Word for its original intent and purpose. In the same fashion that there's a movement right now to reclaim the rainbow. Because the original intent and purpose of the rainbow was something that was holy, and now it's being used for something unholy. We should be doing the same consistently. And the word church is something that's holy. It's not something that's unholy. 
So now that we've established that, let's go back to where we started this entire process of thought. Numbers chapter 20. Now the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, the Edah, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam dies there and was buried there. There was no water for the Adah, the congregation. And they assembled, kahaled themselves against Moshe and Aharon. The people contended with Moshe and spoke and saying, If we'd only perish when our brothers perished before Adonai, why then have you brought Adonai's kahal, his assembly, into the wilderness for us and our beast to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It's not the place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. All the stuff we were promised isn't here. Why did I come back and read that again? Well, if we understand from the language that's used there that it's specifically the synagogue, the congregation that assembles ecclesia itself in opposition to Adonai's leadership. You see, if we're going to be real and honest, we can't just translate the Hebrew into words that are pleasant only when it works in our favor. We can't insist that the words edah and kahal refer to only true believers that have received the revelation that we're to keep Torah and we're somehow better than everybody else. As opposed to the church that are just a bunch of ignorant fools and idolaters and pagans. See, here's the thing. In this passage... It's the congregation that is being rebellious. It's the church, the ecclesia, the adah, the kahal, all of them that are the false believers because they're the ones that are putting themselves in opposition to Adonai and His anointed. In this passage, it's us who are rebelling against Him. How about them apples? We like to talk about how the church has placed itself in rebellion to him. But the church denies that they were there. We claim that we were there. We claim that we have received the inheritance of being at Sinai. Because we've embraced his instructions. At the same time, were we like those who rebelled? Are we like the few who remain faithful? This is why it's always important to approach Scripture from a place of humility and not from a place where we think we know it all already. If we do, we're going to make the same mistakes our predecessors did. Specifically, the congregation is who complained over and over and over we complained. It was the congregation that denied Adonai's sovereignty time and again and spoke out against His anointed. In contrast, we see the examples of Moshe and Aharon. How did Moshe and Aharon respond each time the congregation rose up and complained? Numbers chapter 16, verse 4. When Moshe heard this, he fell on his face. Numbers chapter 16, verse 22. But they fell on their faces and said, O oh Elohim, El of all the spirits of all flesh. When one man sins, will you be angry with the entire Eda synagogue 
congregation? Numbers chapter 16, verse 45. Get away from among this Edah, synagogue, congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then Moshe and Aaron fell on their faces. Numbers chapter 20, verse 6. Then Moshe and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly, the kahal, the synagogue, to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the kavod, the glory of Aronai, appeared to them. We need to ask ourselves today, do we want to be part of the congregation, whatever we call it, that stands in opposition to Adonai and stands in opposition to his anointed? Or do we want to be part of the congregation, whatever you want to call it, even if you want to call it the church, that he builds, that the gates of Hades will not be able to withstand Do we want to defiantly insist that if we go our own way, follow our own path, that we will be successful? And yet the example is that we will fail. Or will we instead fall on our faces, not caring one bit about our own reputation? You see, put yourself in the shoes of Moshe and Aharon. They were the ones being attacked from a human perspective but they recognized they were not the ones being attacked. They saw through that and knew it was Adonai the people were attacking. Thus, their egos didn't get in the way. That's why they fell on their faces. It wasn't about them. And it's not about us. It's about Him. Will we be willing to put our mouths and noses in the dirt before Him and breathe the dust that we might be humbled in His presence? Or will we raise our fists at Him and insist that we get what we deserve, the vines and the pomegranates? Will we insist that we get to follow our own counsel? Will we be part of the generation that dies in the wilderness? Wandering like vagabonds, never to see our promised land? Or will we be faithful and be the generation that sees His glory, His kavod manifested in our midst and walk into the land that He promised us? You see, in this portion of Scripture, that glory only appears after we put our faces in the dirt. About our reputations and recognizing that any rebellion against Him is an affront against Him and we need to stand in the gap by not standing at all, but falling on our faces before Him and praying for those who are committing the errors. Not pointing our fingers at them, blaming them, calling them names, but interceding on their behalf. Because that's the example we have from Moshe and Aharon. Let's remain humble before Him and before His anointed. Let's remain faithful to the One who is more than faithful. And let's allow Him to build us upon the rock, the very rock that followed us 
in the desert. The very rock from which living waters flow. The very rock that is the cornerstone of the church. May we make sure that we are upon Him as our foundation and not upon something else. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the day that You've given us. We thank You for the words that You have allowed to be recorded for our benefit, that we might learn from them, that we might see Your heart revealed. Father, forgive us, for we have complained. We've been unfaithful. We have not believed good reports, but in our flesh we have pursued after the evil reports. We've complained against our brothers. We've complained against your anointed who created those brothers and placed them in positions where you want them to be. Father, forgive us for being prideful and haughty. Help us to be humble before you. Help us to always, in all things, have a reaction of falling on our faces before you and being humble before you. We surrender to you, Father. And we ask that your hand would be upon us, that we might walk into your promised land, that we might see the good land flowing with milk and honey after we have been faithful to you. We thank you. And it's in the name of your Son, Yeshua, our Savior, your anointed one, that we pray. Amen. Amen. If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke unto Moshe and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Yivorechecha Arunai Vaishmarecha Panaha vilecha vayasim lecha lecha shalom. Vashim Yeshua Hamashiach, Sarcha shalom, shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.
Your name is power over dark. 